Second Chronicles chapter 33. So the last two verses of the previous chapter, chapter 32, says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the books of the kings of Judah. So that is an interesting thing about Hezekiah, by the way. You read about him in the book of Isaiah. This will come as a surprise when you're reading through it. It reads very much like a prophecy, and then all of a sudden you're reading a history very similar to what we, what we read in Second Chronicles, and that's also in Second Kings. And it says in verse 33, Now Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Thus then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Ver chapter 33 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And so this is really, really a, a, a shocking turn of events, a sobering turn of events. It's, you, you read it and it makes your heart sink. Consider this, Hezekiah, who, um, Hezekiah's father, was an incredibly evil king. His name was Ahaz. And he boarded up the temple and he practiced all kinds of evil. He set up altars to foreign gods. He instituted um, sexual idolatry in what's called the high places in mountains and in other places as well. And we read about him, and it says that other kings came in and defeated him, but the worse things got, the worse he got. And uh, he was just an exceedingly wicked king. Hezekiah comes around, and when he's 15 years old, he immediately sets out to bring revival. He immediately sets out to bring revival in the land. He breaks down all the images. He institutes um, the teaching of the Word of God. He sends out missionaries beyond the borders of Judah. Uh, a faith not worth sharing is not worth having. And he and then there's also a great revival. There's a Passover feast, which had not been celebrated for many years. And in verse 36 of Second Chronicles 29, it says, Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. The whole land was rejoicing because of what happened. And yet, his son comes in 
Now, granted, he was only 12 years old. And we did see a decline sort of in Hezekiah at the end of his life. He didn't have the Holy Spirit as we have it. The end of his, uh, towards the end of his life, you know, it does appear that he, he, he took pride um, in all the riches of his land. The Babylonians came and wanted to, uh, had heard about his fame, and instead of just really uh, repenting and, uh, not repenting, but humbling himself, he exalted himself, and he showed them around um, all his riches, it, it, and he was a very righteous man, but it does say in verse 26 that he humbled himself after doing that. So Manasseh, however, unquestionably saw the righteousness and righteousness of God that comes about by a man who loves the Word of God. He did have Hezekiah as an example. Hezekiah um, wasn't perfect. Um, I don't believe that Manasseh saw him um, sort of in the height of his spirituality. Um, by the way, there's not, nothing in the Bible that says that it's like the normal Christian life, you go into a backslide. It, it, it never says that, not even once. Very early on in my Christian life, and I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to, to, to even say this because it's, I don't mean it in a prideful way at all, but the Lord just told me flat out, you're never going to backslide when I was like 25 years old. And I just always remember him speaking to me like that. And the thing he told me at the time is it's, not, it's nowhere in the Word of God that at least in the, you don't see it in the New Testament as that's like the norm for coming to the Lord. It just is not seen. Now you do see that kind of thing in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament you don't. And so please, 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 we're going through the Old Testament. Don't think it's okay to backslide. Hezekiah apparently did... Um, it wasn't like a full-on backslide like some of the previous good kings have done where they actually st they started good and they ended actually wicked. It was nothing like that. He wasn't worshiping other gods. Some of the, the, the kings that were, were good actually ended really bad in that way. Um, but uh, he, he definitely didn't finish his life as you know, Paul prays at the end of his life, and he tells Timothy, I just want to finish this race with joy. It, it doesn't, didn't look like Hezekiah did that. And, um, but don't, you know, we go through the Old Testament, uh, but don't, don't become a part of this culture, and I've seen it in Christianity, that it's normal to backslide. I, I, I remember I started off um, at a church where... Um, it just seemed like every, everywhere I went, um, I was listening to Christians. So, yeah, I came to the Lord, and after a year, I backslid, and five, months, five years later, I, I came back to the Lord, and then I backslid. And that was a part of everyone's testimony, and that's when the Lord told me, this is not going to be you. Now, in the New Testament, we don't see too many Christians. Do we see, well... Arguably, we do in Paul's letters. He mentions a few names. But we don't really see many Christians in the New Testament backsliding. Uh, and so, um, but we can still learn from this. Um, we're reading the Old Testament, not so, oh, it's okay for me to go into a backslide, but um, to the, the possible side effects, well, uh, or, or the possible consequences, well, one of them is, man, if your kids see you not finish well, they may take note of that, and they may not go to where your level got, which is just a little bit down, but they may go to the very bottom, and that's what happened to Manasseh. Now, it's also true, I always have to say this, that just because someone, a man, you know, it could be that a husband and a wife, they raise, they're Christians, they follow the Lord their whole lives, they never backslide, their kids can still choose their kids can still choose to rebel. 
And I can't say this enough either, that the best father who ever lived, his kids backslided God. Adam and Eve backslid, or they uh, rebelled. And so, but Manasseh, uh, we need to take note, not only went to where his father's level was, you know, back down to that level, which was not too far down, he went to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the, of the empty well. I mean, he went so far down. He goes farther down than any other king uh, in, in Judah since the line of David had started. And he just begins to, um, like it says in the book of Romans, almost invent new ways of evil. It says in, in, chapter t- uh, in verse 2 there, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And so, remember, Abraham was promised this land, but God said, not until this land gets so wicked that I have to spit them out, which I believe he told Abraham was going to be four or five, four hundred, four, four hundred fifty years later. And so... Um, they got, so at the time of Abraham, they hadn't reached a point where they were so wicked that God wanted to come in and um, cast them out, even though that's where Sodom and Gomorrah had been. And so when they were finally expelled by Joshua after the nation of Israel had been rescued from slavery in the land of Egypt, when they had been expelled by uh, uh, Joshua, the, where the Israelites went in, they were even so much worse than even Sodom and Gomorrah had been. And it says here that Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before. So worse than the nations that had been cast out, which was one of the reasons God sent Israel in the first place to there. To, i got to get these people out there. They're polluting the land. Now sometimes it's difficult reading through, uh, teaching through uh, Leviticus. I've taught through it twice now. You can get those, see, you can get those online. It's like, Shouldn't say I can't say you can get that tape. I can't say you can get that CD. I can say you can go online. Boy, just growing old, I tell you. Some of you probably even were not even born here when they last used cassettes. But uh, anyway, when you talk, uh, when you read through Leviticus, it starts getting into things that make you extremely uncomfortable. Verse seven of chapter eighteen of Leviticus says. Don't have sex with your mother. It's like, Pastor Steve, do you really have to get into this? Chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 11 says, don't have sex with your sister. Come, come, Pastor Steve, why don't you skip this chapter? Verse 21 says, do not take your, son, do not take your sons or your daughters and burn them to death through the fire of Molech. Pastor Steve, come on. There may be children overhearing. And then it goes on to say in verse 24, it says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these things, the nations which I'm casting out before you have defiled themselves. He's describing what the countries, the nations were doing in the area that he's about to send them in to kick out. And now, how, how many years later is it? I see 400, 800, something like 800 years? 800 years later, they're doing the same or worse. They're doing all these things. And so, uh, the Lord said, enough is enough. And, and, and it says here in verse 3, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And one can only imagine the... Uh, 
the people who had been there under Hezekiah's revival, who had seen the altars break down, who had seen these high places where they had orgies broken down, torn up. Now they see his son put them back. They see his son put them back. You can only imagine what they were thinking. You know, we're in a country now where we're, we're, we're seeing things that um, are so exceedingly evil and changes, I mean, I'm about to be 60 years old, changes that are just unfathomable. I remember when I got to Massachusetts, Mitt Romney won the governor's race. It was a little while, a few years after I got here, Mitt Romney um, won the governor's race. And uh, there was a reason for it, and it was about a week before or two weeks before, and this would have been, does anyone have the date? You can Google it. When was Mitt, Ro Mitt Romney's first governorship? Someone Google it for me. Can you Google that? Oh, this is so wonderful being able to do this. What year was that? There's actually a purpose for me doing it. 2004? F first person gets a star, gets a sticker. First person. You were taking notes. Oh, no. So it was in the early 2000s. Mitt Romney, Google search. Okay, we'll get to it. Wow. I, I didn't, uh, is internet not working in here? or was it? <laughs> it would have been two, 2003? Is, is what, when it says the beginning of his, okay, that's an odd year. Um, but in 2003, does it say who he ran against? To say who he ran against in 2003, it was a, it was a woman. Wasn't it no, it wasn't Elizabeth Warren. It was so oh, like, was that? No, she was the lieutenant governor. Jane Swift was his lieutenant governor. He ran against someone in 2004, and so it was a deadlock. Shannon O'Brien? So Shannon O'Brien, it was a deadlock right up until about two weeks before. Shannon O'Brien comes out and says she favors same-sex marriage. That's in 2003. And she, all of a sudden, her votes plummet. Mitt, Mitt Romney wins. That's in 2003. That here in Massachusetts, we were still in that place where, man, if you come out public, you're going to be in trouble. Well, it didn't take very long, folks. It, 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 it didn't take very long to, um, you know, where that, if, if you don't favor same-sex marriage in this state, you're not going to win. And, and, and so that's, that wasn't very long ago. The point is, is that it makes our hearts particularly someone, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the best for everyone then. It was worse for a lot of black people because of the discrimination. But there was a, a lot of the morality and, and things like that. You, you wouldn't have ever have even dreamed of it. But our hearts start to plummet, and we're aghast. And now with the whole thing with, with gender identity, where our kids in public schools are being told you can choose your gender, we're aghast at it. But listen, we're not the first ones. <laughs> I'm just trying to say this. This has been going on for thousands, thousands of years. I mean, what I just described to you um, is, is really, really bad. The city of Somerville, within the last month, was the first 
um, voting precinct in the whole country to legitimize what are called polyamorous unions, meaning if you have multiple spouses and, and sexual partners, you can sort of register with multiple, like it's not even multiple wives or multiple husbands. You can have w whatever combination is. And in city of Somerville last month, or maybe the uh, month before, it became the first um, municipality in the world to grant them equal rights as any other married couple. And yet, you look at some of the things that were going on at the time of Manasseh, and arguably it was worse. And your heart, you know, the, the, our hearts can, can plummet, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, the Lord knows what he's doing. He, there are times that he lets free will and sin just have its reign, but God's bigger than all of it. There is hope. There, there is hope as we see. And the amazing thing is a descendant of Manasseh is who? Jesus Christ. But he gets, he starts, um, he, he says he does more evil, it says in verse 2, than the nations who existed there before Israel came in. Having sex with their wives, their, uh, rather with their with their mothers, with their sisters, with other relatives, burning their kids in the fire. He, he starts doing the same stuff. By the way, it's all, I, 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 need to, I, I need to move on in these verses, but I also, anytime, any, anytime I talk about this, I also, and this is a low point in the life of Israel for sure, but I also have to say, you're capable of the same thing. Did you know that? Did you know you're capable of all this stuff? I hope you understand that, because the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that. We will read later on in the next chapter, if we ever get there, that there was a, one of the reasons for this is the book of the law was lost, the Bible was lost. And this is what happens when the Bible is lost, but the Bible teaches that in the seedbed of our heart, we're capable of anything. So we cannot judge anyone. We can't say, you know, I did some bad things when I was a kid, but I can't believe they're done. No, you, you, it's, but for the grace of God, you didn't do what they're doing. So this guy, Manasseh, worst king Israel ever had, uh, he, it, it, it'll say, we'll read later on that um, even though there was a revival of sorts later on, it says because of the sins, but because of what happened in the time of Manasseh, that um, the judgment is over the house of Israel and it's going to come. It says in Second Kings that he filled the streets of Jerusalem from one end to another with innocent blood. This is just one incredibly evil guy. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord. So his, um, his grandfather had shut up the house of the Lord. And that was unique. I mean, no king had ever done that. He boarded up the house of the Lord. You couldn't go to church. Manasseh actually goes in and the, the temple's open, but he puts up images to foreign gods. He puts them up right inside of the church. It says that he built altars, verse 5, for all the host of heaven. Verse uh, 6, it says he, um, he, he caused his sons to pass through the fire, meaning he killed his sons um, in the fire. It says he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. You know, I remember I was in a, I went to UMass Boston for three weeks with my son Sam to learn Creole, and by then I had already been to Haiti like, oh, I don't know, seven or eight times. 
And uh, I had seen the damage that voodoo has done. Firsthand seeing the tremendous damage that voodoo has done, just destroying families. And th there was a Haitian professor um, there teaching us Creole. I mean, he was a good professor, um, but at some point, at one point, he just started to digress and talk to everyone about how wonderful voodoo was and how it was a part of the culture and um, how it wasn't such a bad thing. And it was just, it was really all about nature. Like you, you speak to people and they, some people, and they say voodoo's not so bad, they'll start talking about nature. And uh, I was in the back of the class and I raised my hand. And I said, I cannot tell you how distressed I am that you are praising something that has done so much damage in the nation of Haiti. Of course, I'm a white guy. And so he goes into this thing about people don't know what they're talking about. And then this woman raises her hand. She goes, well, the Catholic Church has done the same thing. And I said, hold on. What's happened in the, the molestation thing had just happened. This is a while ago. I said, hold on. Those priests were doing the opposite of what their holy books were telling them to do. Voodoo priests are doing exactly what their priests are telling them to do. That's a big difference. And uh, anyway, the guy kept on talking and I shut my mouth. The last thing you should do, we teach evangelism training this, don't think you have to have the last word. I, you know, I, uh, it's important to speak up in, in, in those situations. That's not just preachers. Uh, I did it before I was a preacher and you need to do it too wherever you are. Be, uh, but I have to say, one guy in the class absolutely was not a Christian, just came up to me and he said, I, I want to tell you, I have so much respect for you that you just did that. And this other person said, oh, no, he, it may have been him. He goes, man, you could cut the, you could cut the, like the stress almost with a knife when you were talking in that room. Um, but firsthand, Haiti is an example of, of the damage that happens when you do something like, when you do witchcraft, when you do sorcery, when you consult mediums. Boy, I'm at a slow pace tonight. I'm setting a record. A lot of this stuff is, um, they really try to put nice window dressing on it. For example, Wiccan, witchcraft, Wiccan. The Unitarian Universalist Association, we're very familiar with them in Boston. Unitarian started here. And it's basically all religions come to us, and one of the religions that they are okay with is Wiccan, or witchcraft, we would call. And it says, on, right on, you can go look at this on their page, Unitarian Universal Association. Many Unitarian Universalists draw inspiration from the cycles of the seasons, the beauty and complexity of the natural world, and the intricate relationships between humans and all other life on this planet. Some of us practice indigenous religions and modern paganisms. All of these are part of the sixth source of our tradition, spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct, uh, instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. We also welcome those who identify as pagans, including Wiccans, Druids, and practitioners of goddess spirituality. This is the Unitarian Universalist, um, which those churches are all around our city. It started here, the Unitarians. And on the website, like in the background, you have these people in, in a meadow in front of a, in front of a forest. And it just leads to, they're like going around some pole and they're laughing. And, and so this is how it's presented. This is how it's presented to the world. Like this is not so bad. But Second Chronicles 33 is where it ends. That's where it leads to. It leads to people 
putting their kids through the fire. It, it leads to people having sex with their sisters, mothers, and, 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 and daughters. This is where, it, that's where it leads to. And so that's why we do read through the Old Testament at Calvary Chapel, because it, it, it shows us what happens. You know, witchcraft, it's all about nature. Well, the word, this is what the Word of God says. This is where it's going to lead you eventually. And we've seen that around us. We've seen the very thing. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. It says in verse 7, he, car- he even carved an he even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So God said, I'm going to find a place and I'm going to put my name in there, meaning his presence, the Ark of the Covenant went in there with the book of the law inside of it, and they worshiped the Lord there. Verse 8, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. In other words, God had warned them. Listen, you're going to stay here forever with one condition. You need to start, you need to continue to follow me. Verse 9 says, so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. It says he seduced them. You know, it's one thing to do this sin. It's another to seduce people into sin. Jesus said, it's better for you to go out into the middle of the sea, put a, uh, put a, uh, a millstone, like a very, very heavy rock around your neck and throw yourself off and go to the bottom, bottom of the sea than actually to seduce. He says the little children. I, I, one of the applications of that is like a, a new believer. Or, but it, there's just a general application. There's a, there's, a, there's a greater judgment for those who seduce people um, to, the, um, to, to sin. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So he was actually sending prophets to Manasseh saying, Whoa, don't do this. Stop. Don't do this. It always amazes me when Isaiah was called. By the way, the tradition has it that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half by Manasseh. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, I don't know about that because in the book of Isaiah, it does list specifically the sins, uh, rather the kings that he uh, ministered to. And it says Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah does not mention Manasseh, who came just a few years um, after uh, Hezekiah. Tradition, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it said it spoke of prophets that had been sawn in half. <laughs> and tradition has it that Isaiah was, uh, was one of them. Interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 6, this always amazes me, that in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, in verse 8, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord. He said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And, and so he said, I'll go, send me. And verse 9, uh, the Lord says here, verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 6, And then he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and, ear, and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Oddly enough, I think this is mentioned 
six times in the Bible, like five or six times, including by Jesus on multiple times. It's, and, and what kind of ministry is that? It's like you go to people and they're not going to understand me. Lord, I don't want to go. But the Lord calls us into these kind of ministries sometimes. And he, he called someone into this ministry with Manasseh. So because he, they warned him, they warned him. Verse 10 says he sent his people, he sent prophets, but he didn't listen. He just kept on going lower and lower and lower. And then look at verse 11. So this is where your voodoo, this is where your Wiccan leads you. It says, therefore the Lord brought upon them the captain of the army of the kings of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. This is where this can lead you, certainly to a bad, bad place. I was talking with a young man last night who um, I knew as a young Christian, and he just carried on for 20 minutes about every single area of his life was a complete wreck. He also had basically walked away from Acts 2.42. Four things, which are the pillars of every Christian's life, is described in Acts 2.42. Number one, be under the word. Number two, fellowship. Number three, prayer. Number four, communion. And I said, listen, what can you expect that your, your life would be completely unraveling when the very building blocks of the Christian life are not there. What do you expect? If, if, if your life with God is not in order, how can your, you expect your life to be any different? And so Manasseh here, he got exactly what the prophets had been telling him would come to him. It's a severe judgment. It says they, they took Manasseh with hooks. Now, the actual word there means a nose hook. I don't know about you, but if someone puts a hook in my nose and with a chain, I'm going wherever they tell me to go. I mean, that, 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 <laughs> so that's how he went. And they, they carried him off to Babylon. They carried him away from his own from his own country. Now, verses 12 through 16 are some of the most confusing verses in the Bible. Shocking verses in the Bible. Scandalous verses. I tell you, grace is scandalous. He's going to repent and God is going to forgive him. Now, there's not a single human being, I think, in all of history who would have read everything up to this point and said to God, hey, God, can you, can you give him another chance? Grace is scandalous. If a preacher is not putting scandal in his grace, he's not preaching grace. So let's read. I mean, you know, we're reading this and like, Lord, please, this guy needs to be put to death. He needs to think of those kids he put through the fire. Think of all the sexual practice. Think that blood that went from one side of Jerusalem to another. It says this, verse 12, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and received his entreaty. And rather, and he, God, it received his entreaty, meaning his request. He heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is a scary thing with kids, by the way. You can tell them their whole upbringing, who God is. But I tell you, parents, and I say this all the time, Please pray that the God would show his hand strong in your kid's life because they're going to reach an age. Like, how do I know? I've just been told about this in the Bible. 
Unfortunately, if they leave, there's going to be a lot of damage. There's going to be a lot of affliction. It says at the end of verse 13, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David. Now, the Bible says there's a repentance of the world, which is tears, just tears, weeping, that, oh, I got caught. I'm so sad. And then there's a godly sorrow, which is actually results in great action. And rep the repentance that, that there's not evidence of the penance. There's no repentance at all. This is real repentance. Like part of you may be saying, I, surely this is not real. Please, no, no. It was real. It says, after this, he built the wall outside, verse 14, the city of David on the west side of the Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed awful, awful, and no, not awful, awful. How do you pronounce that? Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm moving on. And he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Wow. You must be kidding me. Maybe you can do this exercise right now while you're here. Just think right now in your own life, who's the least likely person ever to be saved? I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to say anything for 30 seconds. Who is the least likely person that you can think of to ever become a Christian? Close your eyes, please. You don't have to, but I suggest closing your eyes. Just think about that. Think who that person may be. Okay, now, are you willing to pray even tonight for, the, for that person to be saved by faith? Are you willing to be, have, just pray that they would come to the Lord? You can do so by faith because the Word of God gives us an example of someone who I'm 99.999999% sure they're not worse than Manasseh. God saved them. Rather, God saved him, he, and he can save them. I would like to take some time tonight to, to pray for you guys, to pray for those people, not by name. How soon we write people off. I tell you, it convicts me. Some people that I see come back to the Lord. It just convicts me that I wrote them off, Lord, but you did not. The fact that this guy comes to the Lord. I have to read it about once, um, let me see, I have to read it about once every three months because it's such an important Bible verse to me. It's one that you should uh, uh, memorize and it's 2nd Corinthians 7-11 I always just the 7-11 where you buy stuff that's how I'll remember this 2nd Corinthians 7-11 can all of you turn to 2nd Corinthians 7-11 can you turn there I've been in ministry many years and one thing um, that I've learned is when people come in and they're, they're in a bunch of trouble with you and they're saying all the right things but you're confused as to whether they've really repented 
the fact that you're confused as to whether they've really turned back the Lord means they have not repented. It's always obvious when someone's repenting, always. And 2 Corinthians 7.11 is a verse which talks about real repentance. Back up just a little bit. It says, verse nine, in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly ma- manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a godly sorrow and then there's a worldly sorrow. But verse 11, this is the verse, is a description of a repentance that is real. For I observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. Meaning, you were like, whoa, what can I do to make up for all this these terrible things that I did. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. You cannot work your way into God's grace. You can't do that. But real repentance is going to say, you know, I really wronged this person. I really wronged that person. Or I did this. I need to go back to them. That's godly. It says, what diligence did it produce in you? What did Manasseh do? He's like, whoa, have I messed up bad. I, the king, seduced Israel into all kinds of idolatry. I'm going to go to these places and I am going to just destroy them. It's not going to prevent them from going out and make another one in their house, but I'm going to destroy them. That's what diligence, that's what he means by diligence here. It says what clearing of yourselves. Now that does not mean you're making up all kinds of excuses that what you did really isn't that bad. I remember speaking to a man who had committed adultery, and one of the first things he wanted to tell me was, I just want you to know, I'm not a womanizer. There was just one woman. Right there, my heart sunk. I knew that there had not been repentance in this man. And sure enough, he, this man went back to the, the adultery. When someone starts speaking like that and justifying themselves, but that's not what this is clear, that's not repentance, but w- this clearing of yourselves means any wrong that you can do, which includes, by the way, what clearing of yourself, I'm not, not only going to go back to people I've wronged or undo some of the things uh, that I've done wrong, but it, what clearing of yourselves means I'm going to start going to church now. I'm going to start reading my Bible now. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start doing the things that a a man of God or a woman of God does. That's what it means. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. Meaning, you're looking at your sin and instead of saying, instead of trying to make up with people how it really wasn't that bad. I only did that with one man, not many men. That's not what indignation. What indignation was, what I did was so terribly wrong. I, 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 I have no excuse for doing it. Can't tell you how many times I've been with someone who's been in sin and, and all they want to talk about was trying to minimize. It really wasn't that bad. Oh yes, it was. Jesus hung The Son of God was on a cross covered with blood and lacerations because of that sin. It was really that bad. It goes on in 2 Corinthians 11. It says, what fear. There's two ways to look at that. It could mean what, wow, that's terrifying. Where that could have taken me is just terrifying. Or it could just mean a godly fear. Like, I'm just going to stay with the Lord now in His ways. He's showed me in His mercy. He showed me how good He is. And I'm going to stick with the Lord. What vehement desire, meaning if someone's really repented, they're going to have a passion now. They're going to have a passion for God. They're going to have a passion for making things right. But they're going to have, most of all, a passion 
for the Lord, with vehement desire. Ultimately, what the Lord wants is your heart, not all the things you can do for him. He wants your heart. That's what he wants. What vehement desire. What zeal, what vindication. Meaning you want to vindicate the reputation of the Lord. That's what that word vindicate means. You've trashed the Lord's reputation. Now, at least by your repentance, you want to vindicate it. Meaning the people who are now really confused because you live such, you did such a trashy thing or did such terrible things, you want to go back, you want to vindicate the name of the Lord and you want to stay with the Lord. Not one of those things. Ever hear, yeah, you know, someone starts walking with the Lord, oh, that's just a passing phase. This guy was radical for this thing, that thing, all kinds of other things. This is going to be some other radical thing. Um, Believe me, he'll be back to, to, to doing the, the same thing. Well, what this means, you vindicate the Lord by staying with the Lord. It's real repentance. It's, but in terms of the grace, it's absolutely scandalous that the Lord would, uh, would, would actually accept the cry of this man you may remember in, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, said, if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, which had happened to Manasseh, because they have sinned against you, which Manasseh did, and they return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to you. At the end of the prayer, God, God affirms the prayer. He says, yes, I will do that. And so Manasseh was simply praying a promise of God. You can't get into such a low place that you can't cry out to the Lord that that blood of Jesus will not be effectual in covering that sin. Can't happen. It says, verse 17, nevertheless, um, the people still sacrifice on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So at the high places, it's one of those places that, one of those things that people did. They used to go to the highest place because, oh, this is closest to God, and they used to worship God there. Even though in the Old Testament it says you weren't supposed to, it was just Jerusalem and the temple, nothing else. If you want to go and worship God on the top of a mountain, Today, you have the freedom of doing that, but don't think for a second it's any better doing that than going to the lowest place on planet Earth, wherever that is. Where's the lowest place? Is it, is it that desert in, in California? I, I, I don't know. Um, but, but, uh, but, but anyway, it, it, there's no magic to being at the highest place on the Earth. earth. But at, it says at, at least... In those places, they worship the Lord their God. So there's actually some people who were continuing to worship God uh, at this time. So that's the life of Manasseh. 